1: The Conservative Conscience. And welcome back to The Conservative Conscience. This is your host, Daniel Harwitz. And indeed, with our new intro music, we are growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, The good news, folks, we are actually looking to be syndicated and uh, not happening this week, but we might be on iHeartRadio. So I don't know how you guys download. Some people go through the apps, Apple, Stitcher, um, but... There are going to be many other ways to hear this show, and for good reason. A lot of you guys are looking to break through the hot air, break through the false dichotomy, the false talking points, the false choices that are presented to us. And you're looking to not not only discuss principles, but how they translate to today's challenges, how our view of governance on, on domestic policy, on foreign policy relates to the reality of the issues we're confronted with and, and with a great degree of specificity. That has always been my goal. Um, and, and that's why you know we've taken one issue after another, whether it's healthcare, whether it's immigration, whether it's the courts. I'm going to have more articles coming out this week. Today as well, the courts are just on a rampage. We need judicial reform. And then certainly on foreign policy. And nowhere is this lack of innovative thinking, lack of common sense, Lack of resolve more evident than what we're seeing today in Afghanistan. And it's really a reflection of the broader problems. Um, You know, one of the most prescient things that Bill Buckley ever said, and there's a lot of profundity to, to it, is that he'd rather be governed by the first number of names in a telephone book than the Harvard faculty. And what he meant by that is there is something malignant about the swamp way of thinking that is so devoid of common sense, that is so America last, puts our interest last, so politically correct, that if you just take your average person, even if he has no experience in the issue, just his self, his desire to self-preserve himself, he's not going to go and self-immolate in order to appease the, the pagan idols of political correctness. Posthumanism, multiculturalism, and all of the liberal diseases that have permeated every corner of Western democracies, all of the cultural elites. Sadly, it's not just permeated media, Hollywood, entertainment. It's very prominent in the business world, and it's very prominent, unfortunately, in the military as well. And we saw that culminating with the Obama era where we now have a military leadership that is more concerned about transgenderism than uh, you know, promoting our interests and protecting the lives of our tru- troops and making sure their sacrifices are worthwhile in America's interests. Now, Donald Trump gave a speech Monday night on Afghanistan that, as I noted in my article, I, I largely agree with it as I agree with most of his speeches, because most of his speeches and most of his tweets reflect his campaign rhetoric of completely upending the swamp mentality. The problem, as we've noted, is that because there are almost no conservatives left in this administration, especially with Bannon gone, he has surrounded himself with the swampiest of swamp creatures that embody this screwed up mentality and way of approaching policy issues that has rendered his statements and speeches moot. I mean, just today I'm watching Trump um, really on message on Twitter about the debt ceiling fight. The problem is, his own administration, his own Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, has been pressuring conservatives in Congress to give in on the debt ceiling. I mean, he's got to get that together. So, you saw this with Afghanistan that Trump's intuition is right. Um, he doesn't want to get involved in these Islamic civil wars. He wants to just defeat the enemy where it poses a threat and get in, get out, done. Not interested in this nation building. But what has happened. Is that there is not a single voice around him that has served as a counter to what the political political class is pushing. So what he has actually signed on to from Mattis, McMaster, Tillerson, and obviously Votel and Nicholson as commanders of Sencom and, and and the you know, Afghanistan, the coalition forces in Afghanistan, they share the mentality. The mindset of what has ensured we failed in, in Afghanistan for 17 years. That rather than engaging in counterterrorism and using soft power to fight our enemies, to go after the money, the funding in Pakistan, some of this Trump mentioned in his speech, it's all about working with the Afghani government to nation build, but don't call it nation building. That, in a nutshell, is what's going on. Um, you know, it's the same thing with Trump's speech in, in Arizona Tuesday night. It's completely divorced from what his administration is actually doing. And that's why today I wanted to bring on a voice to to uh, who, who actually understands what is going on, on the ground in Afghanistan, because he was there, to give you a sense of why what the generals are pushing there, which is really what they've always been pushing there, is not a reflection of... Of the broad message that he was pushing. Because again, Trump was really trying to, you know, he was trying to give over to people what he really wanted to do, but he felt forced to change. So he kept the same talking points. Again, it's counterterrorism over nation building, it's putting the screws to Pakistan, the funding, taking a holistic approach, which is everything we've been talking about. And we've been talking about that for the last two years you know even when our audience was a fourth of the size it is now when nobody wanted to focus on afghanistan and i i spoke a lot about the backwards nature of our foreign policy under obama the problem is all of those people at the national security council at state at the pentagon are are there <laughs> they're, they're continuing that so while trump will tweet out literally the opposite. It, it, the same stuff continues. So, for example, while the generals are infatuated with propping up the Afghani army, Afghani military, security forces, Afghani government, which is the source of directly and indirectly over a thousand lives lost during the 2011 surge with the green on blue violence. They're compromised by um, all sorts of elements. Heck, they're negotiating with the Taliban while, while we're supposedly implementing a surge to fight them and yet at the same time what has the administration done this week they've dumped on the kurds and they've dumped on the sissy government in egypt so those are things that it doesn't cost us anything to do it doesn't cost us anything to use soft power the threat of of kicking them out of nato in the in the case of turkey turkey is much more important than Afghanistan. That's where the money is. They're, they stand at the nexus of the Sunni Salafist and I, Iranian jihad because they're close with both, even though um, Erdogan is the Sunni de facto Sunni Muslim Brotherhood leader, but he's also close with, um, with Iran, forging even closer ties this week. So we're kissing up to them. And then you go to Egypt where... That is the one administration there, the Sisi government that has actually achieved what we've all wanted to do in Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan but 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 can never do, will never do because they don't, you know, Egypt was a long-standing nation state for many uh, millennia as opposed to these countries didn't exist before World War I. And Sisi is actually killing more terrorists than anyone. Guess what? The administration under Tillerson is now cutting off 290 million dollars of aid. Because they're being mean on human rights. (laughs) I mean, they're throwing Muslim Brotherhood dudes in jail. And I'm not saying they do things, you know, broadly that we, you know, wouldn't like, but that's just dumb. So, a lot of, I know what resonated with people from Trump's speech most was him using rhetoric against Pakistan. Man, that's really where it's at. You're right. The problem is there's no evidence that Tillerson is going to use that power to, um conservatives I know my boss I know you know Mark Levin a lot of you have been asking me well he seems to be singing a little different tune on Afghanistan and I think again fundamentally we agree the problem is I think Mark and many others are taking Trump's speech literally as if it's policy and you know you guys in this audience are very well acquainted with the fact that uh you can't point to Trump's policies Trump statements as policy outcomes because everyone in his administration is doing the exact opposite. with Pakistan there's no evidence that Tillerson is threatening to cut off aid is threatening you know one big uh, soft power that I plan to write about in the coming days or weeks if I have time is immigration. We have tremendous amount of immigration there from from Pakistan. Notice we haven't threatened to cut that off that they haven't been a part of the so-called travel ban immigration moratorium. There's a lot of tools we have and trump was right to speak to that because i think that's going to do a lot more to actually address the counterterrorism issues and the real threat we don't have, we have no vested interest in standing up afghanistan it's a bunch of caves and mud huts um they can't hurt us unless we allow in their immigrants to our country okay i mean that's that's what 911 was all about now there are some broader regional you know security problems certainly we don't want pakistan's nukes falling into their hands But that is about using soft power. Trump was right. But Tillerson is not implementing any of that. And where is he implementing this in Egypt? Screwing with Israel, screwing with Sisi, screwing with um, the Kurds to side with Erdogan. It's completely backwards. This is my concern. But with no further ado, I've already gone way too long here. I want to bring in our special guest here. Many of you remember Jaron Jackson, Captain Jaron Jackson from Oklahoma when he ran against Mark Wayne Mullen, Another swamp creature from Oklahoma 2nd District, Eastern Oklahoma. Um, it's been about a year and a half, my gosh. Uh, we, we were uh, in our baby stages back then. And uh, he's joining us again today. You know, he. Th- this is someone I really want to talk to because he was a captain, uh, pl- uh not a platoon, I was going to say platoon commander. He's a company commander in Afghanistan, two tours of duty at the height of the first surge really the third surge, but the big main one, 2011, 2014, he will give us insight today of what the Afghani government looks like, what the Afghani military looks like. What does it mean when we say we're training Afghani soldiers? What sort of risk does that put our soldiers in? What mission do we have to what end? And you'll see why we have some concerns about the direction we're headed. Um, anyway, just to finish up, Jaron owns a small business that finds act that, Finds active duty military civilians jobs across the country. Very important job there. And obviously lives in eastern Oklahoma with his wife, Katie, two children. And more importantly, to our interest, by the way, and we're going to discuss this probably at a later date, he is planning on challenging Mr. Break Your Term Limits pledge Mark Wayne Mullen again in 2018. So you're going to want to listen to what he says. Hey, Jaron, that was a mouthful. So much to say about you. How are you?
0: Hey, Daniel. Nice to have me on. I appreciate you.
1: Yeah, it's great to have you again. Um, You you know, obviously, as I mentioned, we have a political class that's broken, that has permeated the top ranks of our military. And I think the president would be well served, as well as the public, by hearing from more captains, majors, lieutenant colonels. That didn't get to where they are because of, um, you know, writing politically correct the- theses and engaging in, you know, council on foreign relations footsies, footsie tours, but actually understand combat, understand strategic interest, and what I want to start off with is this. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of those that are supporting a surge in Afghanistan that we're going to double down indefinitely. Um, because we don't want to lose the last 60, 16 years' worth of investment, even though we already lost it. They're saying that, well, don't worry. This is really – it's just a few thousand troops. We're just going to um, – we're not nation-building. No, 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 not at all. We are we're, we have a novel approach. Da, 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 da. We're going to prop up the Afghani security forces, train and mentor them. I'm hearing that word a lot, train, mentor, assist. Could you explain to our listeners what that actually means on the ground? It doesn't mean we're training them in the Arizona desert, does it?
0: Right. Okay. So let me, I will speak from my experience. What I don't like is when people use broad brushstrokes because, you know, when we say we're going to train people, well, we're dealing with a lot of different individuals at that time. I mean, you might be talking to a guy, I mean, in 2010, I had a, a father tell me that he had multiple sons. He said that one of his sons was in the Afghan police. One of his sons was in the Afghan army. And a couple of his sons worked in Dubai as, you know, um, taxi drivers or whatever. But then he also confessed to me that one of his sons was in Pakistan as a member of the uh, Haqqani Network out of Ali Sheer. And I kind of looked at him and I said, well, why is that? He goes, I got to make sure I win no matter who wins. (laughs) And it's this idea that whoever... You know, whoever an Afghan is, he's got family, he's got friends, he's got connections that are probably playing both sides. Um, And if he's not or his, his family's not, they definitely know people who are. And so when we talk about Afghanistan, the first thing that I will submit in my experience is that Afghans don't consider themselves to be Afghan as Americans consider themselves to be American. There's no national identity. They identify. With what tribe they are, with with where they where they're from, and and who their family is, and so I think one of the first mistakes we make as a Western country, as the superpower, is to categorically frame everybody in Afghanistan as an Afghan. Um, I think that's the first premise that we've made that you know is, is incorrect because from that we assume all these other manifestations or all these other fruitions. That if every Afghan believed that they were an Afghan, yeah, those assumptions may hold true. But because there's an incredible amount of nuance and there's so much history uh, in that country and so many competing alternatives. You know, Daniel, I, I knew people from two different tribes who were at war with each other uh, going back centuries because there were blood feuds. One guy had killed another guy and so on and so forth. Their descendants were still at war. They didn't know why. They just knew that at some point, someone from the other tribe had killed theirs. And so there was this, you know, unsatiable or insatiable, I should say, um, you know, honor to to kill each other. And so we first, let me back up. We first have to understand Afghanistan, like most places in the world, is a very complex uh, situation And when we talk about foreign policy, when we talk about military strategy, it's very easy to do big, broad brushstrokes, and I think that does a disservice to people on the ground. Uh, You know, for your listeners, I was 24 years old in 2010, and I was in charge of 20 men on the border of Pakistan, a mile away from the border, Uh, and they basically dropped me off in a helicopter. Said, "Okay, go figure things out." (laughs) So. when we start to think about surges and when we start to think about boots on the ground, which is a phrase I despise, when we start to think about stuff like that, we really have to get down to what does this look like on the ground? And, Daniel, we can go anywhere you want to with this conversation because uh, <laughs> I've got plenty of experience, plenty of insight on all that.
1: No, no. And that was a great way. I didn't even know how to get this started because there's this is so broad. But I, I think – You know, you know, just to pick off where you said that there there is no Afghanistan. There's no Afghani people. Um, there never was. I mean, Alexander the Great couldn't conquer it. The the Russians, after ten years, um, you know, couldn't do anything. And and you know, a lot of my friends say full force. You know, the rules of engagement. So there's this assumption that the rules of engagement will change under Trump because Trump has always been very morally clear about that. And that's good.
0: Well, hold on, hold on. Hey, Daniel, on that, I think it's very important because let me just touch on that very quickly. You can change the rules of engagement for an operation that America is is the sole uh, actor in. For example, Donald Trump, President Trump can change the rules of engagement unilaterally for Operation Freedom Sentinel. That's all your special operations. That's your U.S. Army Rangers. That's your Navy SEAL. Those are all your hard knock precision forces that. You know, go kill bin Laden or or do those hard tactical raids. President Trump cannot unilaterally change rules of engagement for NATO missions. The NATO mission is Operation Resolute Support. Mm. That is the mission. That's yes, the operation that the normal conventional soldiers, your sailors, airmen, marine, um, basically as if you're the average guy in the military and you deployed Afghanistan, you're going to fall into resolute support. And so when President Trump announced on Monday correctly that we should switch from nation building to terror, what Americans need to know is that he can change Freedom Sentinel to make those guys more violent. But he cannot unilaterally change um, resolute support because they are a NATO mission. That's an important distinction people have to know.
1: Well, here you are. He already made my point even stronger. See, I was going to say, even if he could change all then it doesn't speak to what we're talking about. So, you know, rules of engagement matter. Let's, I think, to paint a picture, and I know we've talked about this before, to paint a picture for our listeners, a contrast. What a real war with a defined mission probably good in our strategic interests would look like. Let's take Kurdistan or, or North Korea. So, you know, let's talk about Kurds first because it's that's at least the Middle East. We know who they are. They've been allies of us, allies of Israel for a long time. Um, it's as stable of a society as you'll ever get in the Middle East. They have a civil society. They have institutions. They're pretty homogenous. They have control. They have a history of control. Um, and let's say we said, you know what? We want to create a Kurdistan. So you could send special ops to work with them, and also they have a Peshmerga that has proved phenomenal and very effective. There's nothing to – you don't have to reinvent the wheel. There is ground to be held on behalf of people that are people, meaning a uh, distinct people that are in our interest, that will serve our interest, and it's ground that can be, hold, be held that so that any investment monetarily – uh, militarily just lives wise if anyone gets killed in operation, at least it won't get erased. Um, but even then, let's say we I took that to the next step and said we wanna now have them take over the rest of Syria or the rest of Iraq, the non-Kurdish part. I don't know how that works because again, I mean, they're never gonna be able to govern that and you're always gonna have an insurgency. Um this is the problem of you know being fractured. Here we don't even have the first step. We don't even have a non-Pashto, non-Taliban area that's homogenous, pro-Western, non-corrupt government and you know, military force that's effective and with us that could even hold, let's say, Kabul and 20% around it, much less take back a good share of the country and hold it that has been the problem for 16 70 years so the rule you know a lot of my friends are like well you know trump will be all out he's going to go all out and as you pointed you know even the roes are going to be limited because it's fundamentally a nato mission but um rules of engagement against what there's nothing there's nothing to it's not like a regime you want to i want to topple going to north korea we're going to go all out use tactical nuclear weapons go after their ports nuclear installations, their their artillery batteries so they can't attack South Korea, rush in there, regime change. Now you have a homogenous society that's pretty similar to South Korea, should be able to work. I've spoken to people that work with the North Korean dissidents. That is something – I'm not saying we should rush into that. I'm saying that's something that could – it could work. What is the it here? What is the there? What are we doing that we couldn't do for 16 years under any president? What exactly is there to do? Um, and if you could kind of just share some of your experiences while you were there during the surge when we had 150,000 NATO troops and we lost over 1,000 troops green on blue, what that looked like. Talk a little bit about the green on blue problems, the the complicated nature of, of so-called training the um, Afghan forces and propping it up and why that's not really much of a mission that serves our interests.
0: Right. Um to, to speak more broadly, this is why you have to visualize the end state. This is why I argue uh we have to follow the constitution and declare a war. The United States has declared war uh what five times? War of eighteen twelve, Mexican American War, Spanish American War, World War One and World War Two. And every single one of those wars uh ended with a peace treaty. You could argue that World War One wasn't really good, but the fact is that we had a, a decisive, conclusive outcome. And, and every military engagement in American history since then, um, you know, w- w- we struggled to figure out because everything is created twice, first in the mind and then in reality. So if you don't visualize the end state, if you don't declare war, um, you're not going to accomplish that reality. And just quickly, th- when you declare war, you unify the country. We, we say we're on a singular path, let's go for the singular objective. You commit the country. Um, to where your little kids are picking up scrap metal and, and putting it in for the war effort. Families go and rationing. You know, war is supposed, to, war is a departure of freedom. So a free country should not want to be in a state of war because it's not free. And it should be difficult for a free country to go to war because you have to convince a free people that they should, they should forego freedom in exchange for the cruelties of war. So war should be something we, we are very reluctant to go to. But once we make that decision, it's, uh, you know, we we win. <laughs> Victory should be the, uh, you know, should, should be the, the objective. But to get to your point, um, and I can tell however many war stories to paint whatever picture, but here we go. In 2010, I was in Sabari District Coast Province, which is on the east border of Afghanistan. And... I lived on a base, I lived on a far out fire base with both Afghan National Army and Afghan uh, National Police components. And what your listeners need to know is that the police are recruited, trained, and operate locally. So let's say Afghanistan is the size of, the size of Texas, you know, roughly, and generally same population. Let's say if you're the police, if you're from Houston, You are recruited, you are trained, and you act as a police officer in Houston. If you are in the Army and you're from Houston, then you're trained, you know, somewhere else, let's say San Antonio, and you are operating up north in Amarillo. You can go from all over the country. And so what that sets up is the police have an intimate knowledge of the people who live there. The Army doesn't. And so the Army is really kind of at a loss because the human capital they have, the, the intelligence they have, isn't really as, uh, you know, nearly as effective. You know, Daniel, if you come to my hometown of Ulaga, Oklahoma, you won't know anybody. If I walk outside and go to the gas station, I'll know three people. Um, so that's the difference between the police and the Army, just from a very tactical level. But we had a police chief. Uh, who lived on this base with us. He was inside the perimeter. He was allowed to come to certain parts of our command post and, and look at, you know, what, what, what our plans were, what our patrol schedule was going to be. And he sat in on a weekly meeting with me, the other officers on this base, um, the other Afghan national army component and then himself. And this guy was a stick in the mud. He hated to patrol. He was lazy. He was arrogant and he was entitled. So he carried around the, the title police chief uh, like a cudgel. And whenever he didn't get his way, he would just smash and just say, I'm the police chief. Well, in 2010, that was the surge, but that was still the counterinsurgency mentality of this is the Afghan country. So whatever they want to do, they can do. Well, he would he would dictate patrols that didn't make sense. He would tell us, let's go out on a patrol at two o'clock in the morning. Well, in that area of Afghanistan, when the sun goes down, everybody goes to sleep because they don't have power. So to do a patrol at two o'clock in the morning, you can make an argument that you're going to catch you know, insurgents or whoever, but really what you're doing is nothing. And so for the entire deployment, this guy cut against our efforts because he would put his foot down and uh, promote patrols that didn't make sense.
1: You know, well, Jaron, J- just before you continue, just as, as part of this, were you ever scared that the guy would shoot you in the back of the head?
0: Oh, I mean, you kind of get to ignore it after a while. Um, <laughs> yeah, at some point you realize, you know if if the dear Lord's gonna take me, he's gonna take me. I prefer not to see it coming. And uh, I mean, of course, we we did credentialing at the at the checkpoints into our base. Um, we made sure that uh, there were escorts for people who, even though they were credentialed, we made sure that there was an armed escort. So, yeah, we took, you know, preventative measures, but that just becomes part of your life. I mean, it's just normal to carry around, you know, an M4 that's loaded and your, you know, your hands on the pistol grip while you're talking to a guy who is, quote, your friend. So it's just, it's just part of life. Um, But this guy, getting back to this police chief, uh, in November of 2010, I lost a soldier on November 8th. He was killed by a 107 rocket. Um, four days after this patrol – or four days after he was killed, uh, this police chief uh, recommends uh, – well, demands that we go on this patrol out at 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, just like I kind of set up for your listeners. And he was going to go on it, which was incredible because he never went on patrol, and he never was so uh, zealous about going out and doing something. And so I'm sitting here going, okay, this is good. This is a sign of success, enthusiasm enthusiasm in my mind meant success well we go out on this patrol and as we're leaving the wire it's my platoon with his police and him as we're leaving the wire he steps to me and he goes i'm not going <laughs> okay well we, we planned for this thing we're literally going out the wire this is your plan these are your people why and he just goes i'm not going and he turns around and he walks back to his hut. And so, okay, fine. So I go out and we execute the mission. Well, we're in this mission. We're in this, uh, you know, OP. We're in this observation point. And all of a sudden, machine guns open up and rockets start flying overhead. And it's <laughs> 2 o'clock in the morning. It's pitch dark outside. There's no one out there. And none of my guys are making any movements. We're not using white light so no one can see us. We are quiet. There's no way people can tell we are there. What had happened Uh is that this police chief set up an ambush, coordinated it with guys coming across from Pakistan, and then used us as bait, used his own men as bait. Because at this point, what they were trying to do is they were trying to cut the head off the American snake. They're trying to get as many officers as they could. And so whenever we were ambushed, um, you know, thank God no one was hurt. I mean, they missed. I mean, rockets were close, machine guns were close, but luckily, you know, nothing, nothing happened. But that guy, that police chief walked off the base never to be heard from again. Oh. We, we got, we got three days after this, three days after this attack, I think this is uh, close to veterans day on November, twenty twenty ten. 2010. Uh, no, no, no. The ambush happened on veterans day. So this is November 14. Um, we get, this report from our intelligence guys that are warning us, hey, the police chief is calling people from Pakistan. So, you know, by the time he's already coordinated and done everything, the attack has happened. The guy runs off in the middle of the night. We've, he's never been caught, from my understanding. And then we get told by our guys, hey, this guy's talking to the other side. So that's just one very long, wow. I'm sorry, detailed example of, how you live with a guy for a year i got there in january and this is november so i had known this guy for 11 months 11 months in the same base and he still had the ability to coordinate that attack uh, and walk off as, as though it were nothing the thing that makes me i guess the most upset is that he was willing to put his own guys in the line of fire um, you oh, know, I can do a lot of I can do a lot of mean things and a lot of violent things to people if I if I'm angry at them. I can't do that if I'm jeopardizing or risking someone I care about. And I think that's another takeaway: is they see life, they value life differently with, than we do. Um,
1: it, it, so. What you're painting, I mean just just that three four minute presentation. I wish the pre- if the president could hear that. I think it would completely give him a new perspective, which I think his instinct sense anyway. Um, what I've honed in on, and you know, I've given a lot of thought to this. It's really been troubling me all week. What's going on in Afghanistan? What we're doing? And I honed in on one central problem with what the Max Boots of the world, the you know, all the the same crowd that the Lindsey Graham, John McCain, all the the, the generals that are into this strategy. There's there's one glaring hypocrisy. On the one hand, they say, no, 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 you don't understand. This is it's not like before, like, you know, where it was a big deal. We're doing not all we're just, you know, letting them lead and take their own country. And that sounds like, all right, you know, it's not a big investment. Why not do it? But in fact, what you're painting is that's exactly what we've been doing. It's the worst of all worlds because you're putting our guys under the auspices of, of, of the Afghanis. We don't know who they are. They're not trustworthy, much less effective for the most part. I certainly can't guarantee that. And then you're telling me it's not nation building. It, it certainly is nation building. Again, I think fundamentally, again, people like Mark Levin, they, they picture what's going on here. We're just going to take the gloves off. What you're describing, there's nothing to take the gloves. Taking the gloves off would be, you know, if you had a stable Kurdish-style governance of most of Afghanistan. Albeit you had an insurgency confined to the southwest corner of the Pashto area, let's say, with the Taliban resurgence. All right, let's just go to that kind of line, hold our ground, and then go into there and just blow them up full force. That's where full force applies. Here – it's ubiquitous it's in every nook and cranny of the entire country it's patrolling down narrow things in the middle of the night like you're talking about with people that set you up for ambushes that's how we got most of our casualties um in 2011 to 2013 what is going to change about that? i i just want you to comment on um you know just for our listeners we rarely run things that have two sides i mean as you guys know I'm Mr. Definitive. Tell me, Daniel, what you really think. You know, and that's what it is. It'll be bullet points. Here's what we should do. Here's what we shouldn't do. I don't like vacillating. If you want debate, there's plenty of other places to go where you have five different views. A national review at any given day. Um, we we need clarity in our error. But you know, given this, this is a little different issue. And you know, um, we got Mark Levin. We you know, so we posted um, an article from uh, one of Heritage's uh, researchers, and unlike any other issue i genuinely wanted to hear the other side of this because i badly want want something to work i mean after 17 years you don't want to throw it away and i want to find what what is some sort of outlet and i look at this guy's conclusion and um it just it's just really amazing to me it it is it it, it is i, I just th- th- there's no words to describe it i j- just Again, I don't think anyone needs to be dishonest here, but just a lack of regard for what, Jaron, what you just said is on the ground. He said, um, where, where is this here? The commitment to send more U.S. trainers is particularly important. Notice we call them U.S. trainers. The war being fought in Afghanistan today is not the same war from 2001 or even 2009 when the U.S. was leading combat operations. Today, the Afghans are in the lead, and the U.S. mission is one of training, advising, and assisting. And, I mean, every word of that is wrong because, like you noted, that's exactly what you were doing back then. That's why we got ourselves killed. That's why with 150,000 troops, it, it you know, ended in disaster here, you're going to say a few thousand more troops when the government is no, you know, further towards um, being stable than it was back then. And the Taliban have much more ground, which is why we're creating this emergency to go in there. I, I don't understand what we're going to accomplish, how it's not nation building and how this is some sort of a, oh, don't worry, this is like not so dangerous, not so involved if anything to me this sounds like the worst of all worlds I would rather us just keep our bases do our own thing screw the Afghan government screw the Afghan security forces maybe use a couple of trusted units we know from there and under our auspices where they're not sharing intelligence with the Taliban um or have saboteurs we do our counterterrorism and 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 leave and don't have to hold it you know walk in these neighborhoods and cuz it just doesn't speak to speak to what's going on. Jaron, has anything changed since you left that that this would work?
0: Well, so I'm not there right now, but I, I, I have worked with hundreds, if not thousands of Afghans. Uh, let me go back to what you spoke to. You know, we're just going to send in U.S. trainers but think about the arrogance that's behind that idea. Um, first of all, it presumes a willingness to be trained on, on behalf of the Afghan. Um, Afghans don't look at military service as Americans look at military service. Uh, whereas I serve the American people, I swear I know through the Constitution. The, in my experience, again, I'm not trying to brush, rough stroke, but people in the Afghan military don't look at it as I'm serving my fellow countrymen. They look at it as this is a good way for me to make money and this is, uh, you know, um, how I, you know, get my gun off. This is how my ego is puffed up. I mean, there's a lot of that society is, is patriarchal. And so if you can rise to the ranks of the army, um, it kind of, co- it, it coincides with the culture that says, you know, I'm big macho bravado, man. I mean, they're, they're males are males too, right? I mean, people like power. Um, so, I mean, the first, again, the, the arrogance to presume that the people who are going to be training want to be trained. But then the second part of that is we can train them to do something, but then they have to themselves do the thing that they are trained, right? So we can set up court systems. And this is just for so, somehow you jog this in my memory. We, we uh, came across a known jihadist responsible for killing uh, over a dozen Americans and, and dozens of afghan civilians in 2010 we arrested him we sent him down to salerno which was where uh you know the, that's the provincial capital of the coast or excuse yeah no, no no i'm forgetting that's the provincial capital uh of, you know down south where we were and he went to court he went to trial the village elders basically his father and his uncles and all the other important <laughs> people from his village went down to salerno and quote vouched for him and said, we got this guy, give him back to us. Two things happened. When this guy was in custody, attacks ceased, everything basically died off. As soon as they vouched for him and he came back, things tripled because the guy was mad that he got detained. So we can project upon Afghanistan, uh, you know, institutions of courts or institutions of military readiness and training, but they themselves have to do it. Um, And in my opinion, our strategies have inculcated a culture of dependency and corruption that's deeper than what Afghanistan had before. Because right now, if you think about it, the the markets in Afghanistan are really one where you're competing for American dollars. You're competing for American resources. It's not free markets that you and I support. It's it's the it's a it's a crony market. And so it, who can get you know more uh, pork. From the americans and i'll be honest with you i would walk into villages in 2010 2014 and 15 whenever i was there the second time and we talked to people and we contract uh development projects worth millions of dollars that back here in the states wouldn't cost but you know five thousand ten thousand dollars the reason why it cost so much there is because quote you know it's dangerous we had to pay people uh we paid a napkin thirty thousand u.s dollars a month 30 grand a month uh, to come in and pump out the sewage of our, of our latrines in my first appointment. We eventually just terminated that contract and, and you know took care of it ourselves. But the fact is that we overpay and that's what Afghanistan has, has, has inculcated to itself. The other thing I'll say, because we've been there 16 going on 17 years, the prime recruit for insurgents is you know teenage kids, young young boys. Those young boys and those teenagers have grown up with Americans as occupiers. They've wow. never known a world without America. And so, if you tell them, if you're you know an insurgent, so so, so, so
1: Jaron, they, they don't even know what the Taliban governance is.
0: Correct. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think again, I think that's another uh, that's another obstacle that, you know, your own world, I mean, everyone has bias. If someone says they don't have bias, they're lying to you. So when we look at Afghanistan, we are bringing our bias. And I'm telling you, after years of of being on the ground, our bias is usually the wrong thing and not the thing that Afghanistan wants or needs. And so when we say we're going to train people, again, it gets back to do they want to be trained and are they going to be doing the things they want to train? But then on the other side, I'm going to train an army. Okay. But who's that army going to go against? It's going to go against the population that has been told America is here. We're here to help. We're here to make things better. But if you're a 16 year old kid, you've never known a world without America. And that is the great evil because they represent the West. And so america could have killed your uncle america could have killed your brother america could have you know divvied up your plot of land and give it and redistributed someone else to 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 form peace whatever it is america can be the the excuse um and and the bad guy it's the boogeyman and it's an easy argument because only american jets fly overhead right the afghans (laughs) uh don't have too many jets in afghanistan and so I, I get to, to kind of get to your point, nothing, I mean, you know, Book of Ecclesiastes says there's nothing new under the sun. It is the same thing with Afghanistan. We've, we've done everything. We've tried everything. And if I can make, you know, uh, a, a major point, and I think this, it would be this. It is that we, because we have not declared war, because we have not visualized the end state, because we have not committed our country to victory, What we have gotten are military strategies that reflect uh, big government, right? Conservatives, we don't like big government because we want maximized freedom. Our founders limited government in the Constitution so that we could have free markets, free trade, defend ourselves, not get involved in foreign entanglement. Well, if you look at nation building, what that really is, that's Keynesian economics, that's American U.S. tax dollars paying For you know to to build up another country, and and that's not wrong when the country gives up. When Germany surrendered, I think the Marshall Plan was the greatest thing that we did for Europe post World War II. Because you had Western Um,
1: democracy, civil society, pretty homogeneous, it made sense.
0: Yeah, and 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 same thing with Japan. When 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 Japan gave up, when Japan surrendered, um, you know we we rebuilt that uh, country. I mean. People can uh, call Japan's constitution the MacArthur Constitution, right? Because we had that much influence on them because they gave up and they surrendered. But if we do nation building without a surrender, uh, we're really just pouring money to try to stimulate their economy and develop in them an appreciation for American way of life. But as, as long as there's a, a spark of insurgency, we will never be able to, qu- you know, to squinch that flame. Um, if you look at counterinsurgency, That's the notion that we're going to focus on securing the population. Uh, You know, you go read um, SM3-24. It's the Army's counterinsurgency field manual. It talks about how our focus as a military should be on securing the population. It's not about, uh, you know, uh, defeating the enemy. That's where I think General McChrystal made one of the stupidest comments in the history of warfare (laughs) when he says the most important shot you fire is the one you don't take. Um, I mean, it, uh, I don't know how many times, oh. I don't know how many times I had soldiers, you know, while being shot at, I mean, I can think of one specifically, 19 year old kid from of Texas, we're getting shot at. He looks at me and says, sir, can I shoot? I, I hit him in the helmet, um, almost broke my hand because I was so mad at him, uh, because we had indoctrinated our own soldiers Jeez. not to fight. Um, maybe your listeners should go, uh, Google, um, I think it's called courageous restraint or valorous restraint. Yeah. The, the 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 DOD under President Obama was actually entertaining the idea of awarding soldiers medals for not engaging the enemy because we didn't want to kill people. Um I will tell you this as an infantryman my my mission, my purpose in life was to close with and destroy the enemy by means of fire maneuver. I'm a warrior. I kill people. That's what we do. So when you have us do something else okay. It's not that I can't learn. It's just that I've trained one thing and now you're asking me to do a completely different thing.
1: Um, exactly. so
0: counterinsurgency, counterinsurgency is really like socialism because <laughs> you're controlling the, you're, you I'm serious. You're controlling the distribution of goods. You're controlling the, the behavior of the population that you're, you're trying to get the behave, the, the population to behave in a certain way. Um, so it's not economic in the sense that socialism literally controls the um, the distribution of goods, but it's uh, and, and the means of production. It's socialism in the sense that we're trying to do behavior modification on a national level. You know, Daniel, we can't even do that here in the United States. <laughs> uh, we can't even we can't even stop people from destroying uh, property. You know, destroying property, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, wow,
1: let's, that, let's that that's back- a powerful point. Wow. I, I, let's,
0: I, let's get back to. Um, uh, and in the third one, President Trump switched to counterterror versus counterinsurgency. Uh, I applaud Donald Trump. I think he is infinitely better as commander-in-chief uh, than Barack Obama. I don't even think you can compare the two. Donald Trump has America's best interest in his heart. Um, he, when you look at counter-terror, I think that's probably the best thing he can do with the hand that he's been dealt. And that's saying a lot because, uh, you know, I, I'll go on record. Amer- America is unwinnable. But if you look at what counterterrorism is, that encourages foreign entanglement because if you're going to identify terrorists, uh, individuals, groups, non-state actors as our enemy, now you ignore the national sovereignty of other countries. So if exactly uh, you know a ter- if if a terrorist goes from Afghanistan, hops across the border into Pakistan, can I put a warhead on his forehead, or do I have to go through the ISI of Pakistan and try to hope? That they go into the federal administrative tribal areas of North Waziristan and pick him up, right? <laughs> and, th- and that's going to be the complication that, that happens. I mean, you can tell Pakistan that they're responsible. And I agree with President Trump. They are. They are the sanctuary for uh, the insurgency. But what happens is, you know, we are encouraging ourselves to escalate the violation of nation sovereignties. Because if it's not Pakistan, why not Indonesia? Indonesia's got the most Muslims in the world. Uh, what about the Philippines? Are we going to go around there and, and start, you know, dropping bombs on 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 people there? They've got a major insurrection uh, happening in, in the Philippines.
1: Meaning, okay. what I sense, Jaron, what you're saying is that there's military action, and then there's nation building, and. Right. The mili- by definition, if what we have to do to make it work is counterinsurgency, and I mean on a mass scale, you could always have you know pockets of resistance, but but that the entire country is not held together, then don't use your military. Then don't do it. Right. And I'm sorry, Daniel. You've,
0: you have touched on the most brilliant point of all military uh, theorists. Carl uh, von Clausewitz. You know um, – mm. He's the Jedi master of military theorists, uh, you know, of the 19th century. He was the guy that looked at Napoleon and said, we'll never be able to replicate. So he came up with the general staff. And that's why every military in the world now has a general staff instead of just one guy making all the decisions. So he made a comment that is very famous in anyone who studies war. And that is war is the extension of politics by other means. It is the recognition that if you can solve a problem with politics, then war is not a consideration. If you cannot solve a problem with politics, then war is your only consideration. And that's why he says, whenever you go to war, you have to unify the country. You got to commit the country. You have to clarify the objective. And and that demands performance from the people. And and let me say something here. When when soldiers, when, when people are fighting for um, a cause and not another and not the person to their left or to the right, you get a better result. Mm. So when when our soldiers were fighting against Nazi Germany, they knew that Nazi Germany was a threat to the United States. When my soldiers are in Afghanistan, we don't believe that Afghanistan is a threat to the United States. And so our actions reflect protection for each other, not for an overall accomplishment yep. of mission. And yeah. I think that, in, I, I think you have to understand that.
1: Yeah, I mean, and, and again, that was the background that, you know, we went wrong from day one by, um, you know, just trying to own Afghanistan as opposed to just doing retribution against Al-Qaeda there. Um, and and we repeated that mistake in Iraq and continuing, you know, threatening to repeat it in some other places <laughs> as well. And uh, that, again, this predated Trump and that's not his, you know, he's dealt a bad hand. But what I sense from all these people is, if you want to tell me, look, Daniel, I don't know what to do. It's been 17 years, but I'm too scared to pull out. So I'm just not fine. I, I mean, whatever. Just be honest about it. I mean, John McCain was said, yeah, we're going to be there for 100 years, which means a 1,000. It's indefinite. Um, fine. But don't lie to me and tell me, oh, we're not nation building. No, we're just helping the Afghani government and the Afghani security forces. Right. I mean, because what I'm seeing is that this is the worst of all worlds, that you get our guys into the most dangerous, precarious situations, both from the Taliban directly and from the green on blue problems with the, you know, like you're describing with the infiltrations and and, uh, you know, the whole complication between the police and the security forces, this tribe, that tribe, this feud, that feud, the, it, it, the whole thing is nation building. It's nothing to do with war. Um, except that, unlike counterterrorism, where we'll actually be able to control what we're doing, they're still in charge. So it's the worst of both worlds. See, they're trying to say, oh, they're in charge, so don't worry, we're not really investing much. No, we're investing everything. We're doing everything for them, except um, it's the most dangerous because they know our movements. I mean, again, my, my listeners, I know you guys are familiar with, last year I spoke about this in August. August is the... This year is the sixth anniversary of Extortion Seventeen. Almost thirty special ops killed in a helicopter when a helicopter was shot down under a very dubious mission. Lots of questions about it, um, and it was the, it was the worst disaster in, in special warfare history. And uh, you know, it's unclear how dark and deep that went but what is prima facie from that is that the iraqis the afghanis on board were swapped out clearly the mission was compromised clearly they knew exactly where they were headed and clearly the afghani government telegraphed that to them and they knew every single special op they knew the mission they knew where they were um and 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 the funny thing is you know again jaren a lot of people are You know, again, some colleagues, some friends of mine are like, hey, you know, I I like what Trump said. You know, the speech is good. Uh, Yeah, this is great. Like, no, no negotiating. Let's just kill the terrorists. But the problem is Tillerson, Mattis and Dunford are going around saying we're going to go. No, we're going to seek to negotiate with the Taliban. And the Afghan government is that's already their position. So could you explain to me what it looks like that we're going to embed troops with um the afghanis and as you noted it doesn't mean training them in the arizona desert mentoring them there it means you go on foot patrols except they control it they're they're in charge you're flying blind but yet they're talking with the taliban how, how are we not going to have massive green on blue from this
0: yeah I mean, it's it, it, yeah that's a great question because Obviously, there's a, a potential for danger anytime you step outside the water. I mean, hell, you're in a you're in a combat zone, so anything can happen. But when we increase the probability that Murphy's Law will happen, whenever we start to uh, you know fragment, in Murphy's Law if anything that can go wrong will go wrong. So uh, <laughs> if you think that you'll you know forget your batteries and your your night vision won't work, then that's why you double check to make sure you have batteries because. Chances are you forget it, and if you're at night and you don't have it and you need it, that's Murphy's law. But we increase we increase the probability that bad things will happen whenever we whenever we start to fragment our forces and take away our military from doing its core competency. The core competency of the United States military is not to train, advise, assist, uh, you know, or coach, teach, train, mentor. That's not what we do. Uh, there are units in the military that do that. That's that's the special forces charter. That's generally what they've done. But here's, here's two things I want to touch on that you kind of jogged my mind on. First, uh, I, I spoke about core competency. The I think the core competency of the conventional ground forces has atrophied because in the GWAT wars we have not allowed those forces to do what they were supposed to do. Um, you know, the infantry did the infantry job during the invasion of Iraq that took all of 19 days. And then after they ceased uh, you know, major combat operations, there was stability ops. And when we train our junior soldiers, when we're developing our, our junior officers to do specific things, to perform specific military functions, uh, we don't train stability ops. We train kinetic operations. We train for the next World War II because the next World War II or the next World War Three is more dangerous, right? We train for what the greatest threat is. And I've always seen a, a gap uh, in that. Um, and it's kind of um, disingenuous to for, for the military to say to itself, well, we're going to train an infantryman to do the shoot them up, blow stuff up, take the high ground, kill people mission. And then everything else, we can just kind of tone it down or kind of take the foot off the gas a little bit. And he should be able to perform at the same thing. Mm. And that gets to that gets back to the fact that we don't have a visualized end state because clarity isn't given, because purpose isn't known. No one really knows what winning looks like. And that's where my ears kind of perked up when President Trump said, we're now gonna fight on conditions and not a stated timeline or stated troop level. Um, Daniel, I'll make, I'll make a comment and this is one you wanna highlight. Generals are more political than politicians. And so when when President when President Trump says, uh, you know, we are going to fight on conditions, that can mean anything. It can literally mean anything. And having served in multiple army units, uh, you know, commanders want things to be briefed well. Uh, You know, there's (laughs) there's this sarcastic response, you know, at at junior levels in the army where it's like, yeah, well, that briefs well, because you're going to brief (laughs) a general a plan and then the reality on the ground is something completely different. Uh, You know, the army has lots of little uh, statements death by PowerPoint. And so a general (laughs) or whoever will look at a slide and as long as things are green, okay, fine. I don't really next green, next, green, next. But if there's red or Amber, you know, some, some, something that's not green like a, like a bull, they will focus on that and say, why is this red? And so there's this, institutional coercion or institutional uh, you know, inertia, momentum towards making sure slides are green. And then that gets back to what does efficiency look like? What does winning look like? And the Army, in its counterinsurgency uh, strategy, go back to FM 324 talks about measures of performance and measures of effectiveness. That's where you get kill counts. That's where you get dollars invested into schools. That's where you get numbers of radios handed out. We start creating other metrics to determine how good we are and if we're winning or not. And so Uh if Donald Trump is giving the conditions, if he's allowing the generals to define what the conditions are, I guarantee you the conditions will always be good. And I (laughs) guarantee you the reports from Afghanistan will always be good. And I know that because the same generals that are Donald Trump's generals are the same men uh, who were Barack Obama's generals?
1: Votel vote and, and Nicholson.
0: It's not just them. I mean, it, it could be any, and that's where I say all. You know, all generals are political, and that uh, let me caveat. That's not bad because generals do a lot of politicking. They work intra-service. They work with other countries. Sure. They have to guide a very large ship, so there is some value in that because they are kind of the the bridge between the military between yep. the profession of arms and the use of the profession of arms.
1: But but, so but the politics good. of our time sucks, so they'll reflect the it, politics yeah, right. of our time.
0: <laughs> right. And so, you know, it's, it's one of those things, you know, politics is downstream from culture, right? So because the culture is one of partisanship, because the po- culture is one of political correctness, the generals don't want to be any different. And that's why you get, you know, chief of staff of the army Saying that sexual harassment and assault is more important than soldiers going to the range and qualifying, but
1: that's a completely oh, different. Oh, oh, but uh, still at topic. the same time, shove co-ed this, coed that, transgender this, right. transgender right. that, let homosexual me, this. Let me, <laughs> you know, let me. Let me
0: <laughs> we're getting off track. Let me let me get back to the conditions because this is this is critical. This is probably the most important thing I'm going to say. Um, if we allow uh, the military to define the conditions. And the conditions are ambiguous and no one really knows what they are then anyone can tell you the conditions on their ground are good and this is where it's dangerous because in 2014 uh the reason why i ran for congress is because we were not allowed to return fire and american soldiers were getting injured isis was in afghanistan shooting at us on a daily basis and i could not tell anybody back home because that's operational security i'm Hmm. violating Operational security, and if I'm a member of the of the military, I don't have First Amendment protection. Sure, I can't just go say whatever I want to say because that might be detrimental to the operation. And I completely agree with that. I agree that you know your freedom of speech is restricted and should be restricted if you're in the military because I don't want you going and giving away state secrets or uh, technical uh, capabilities of, of certain pieces of equipment. But we get back to this idea of. What does winning look like? And if President Trump is saying we'll now make decisions based on conditions, my argument is that that is very muddled and it's unclear, which is why to answer your question, I recommend, and this is after you know much you know prayer and thought, I recommend a permanent base in Bagram only until you know, so we can continue to do counterterror operations. We continue to, you know, engage targets with lethal effects uh, as we see fit. Uh, you get that status of force agreement from Afghanistan uh, in order to do that. Meanwhile, you train up the Afghan Special Operations Force so that they can replicate us.
1: They are. Well, really wait, could you could you explain the difference between training Afghan Special Operations Force versus broadly what we've been doing with the security forces?
0: Right. So exactly. So think about a beat cop. Think about your your normal cop you know, driving around on the street, uh, helping people change tires, uh, responding to emergency calls. He's the guy that's always kind of reacting. He's the guy that's always just whatever the, the street throws at him, he has to respond to. And there's an incredible amount of difficulty there. Um, and then sh- that, that is your normal conventional force. That is your normal, you know, army, police. That's your grunt. That was me in Afghanistan. I'm that guy. I'm the guy that I don't know what's going to happen. I'm just walking through this town. If something happens, I have to react to it and kind of plan against it. On the other side, there's you know, think about the SWAT team. They only get called if there's guys in banks with hostages, and then they come in through the roof and they repel. And they have you know the the great aims and the the best uh, rifles. So they're pinpoint precision strikes. Um, with a very, uh, you know, high probability of information that the information is accurate, right? I know Osama bin Laden is here. So they sent in the Navy SEALs and the Navy SEALs trained for it for, for months before they ever action the target. That is special operations. Uh, had they sent in me, I would, we would have walked around, a big fight would have ensued. Um, I mean, we would have, you know, reduced the whole thing to rubble. And it would not have been as surgical as the Navy SEALs. Uh, so each each element of the military has its own specialty, its own uh, preferred use. And whenever I say that we should focus training on the Afghan Special Operations Forces, it's allowing them to be able to collect intelligence. Um, you know, here's where the bad guys are. Here's how to listen in on their cell phones, all this other kind of stuff. Uh, and then allowing them to uh, use our satellites to create 3D mockups to train on those compounds, and then to do hard knocks, do, uh, you know, deliberate um, action to, to neutralize the, those threats. That is a much more specific, much more refined uh, expertise. Uh, now, obviously, if you don't put a focus or don't put a priority on the Army or the, or, or the police, they'll atrophy. But I make the argument that, you know, it's, they're not really doing their job anyway. It's mostly us doing it. That, that's um, what
1: I'm saying. We're, we're talking about this because the Taliban control more territory than ever before. Um, we just had a bunch of green and blue the last couple of months. There's been 12 killed or injured, um, I believe, since May, June. That's what I'm saying. It, it's. The, the reality that a lot of these people are speaking to doesn't exist. There is no right. Afghani. So we're going to have to let something go. And I think what you're trying to present is rather than just, uh, you know, hang off the helicopter, Saigon, pull off. Pull out. Um, anyway, you need. we need our bases there. So you have that. You engage in counterterrorism, deal surgically with a small element of the, of the Afghanis, and don't focus on owning it, which is what you're – I think what you're trying to do is put the ink on paper to what broadly rhetorically Trump and his instincts were speaking to. The problem is right. this. I've seen several reports, Jaron, of, of – of, um, that McMaster uh, literally – Gave Trump pictures of a time when there were women in Kabul with miniskirts, and you mm-hmm. know exactly what he's trying to do with that. If you know where McMaster's worldview is, um, right? I mean, that's that's the nation building. No, no, no. We could we could succeed. We can own Afghanistan. It could work.
0: Right. The you know my response to that is all life has value, and I just I. General McMaster and I, I think I've never met the man. I've looked at his record. He's a war hero, battle of 73 Easting back in Desert Storm. Like the man loves America. Um, I don't think he's making the right decision with the implication that he's trying to get at that says Afghanistan is not, uh, is not losable. Like there's hope. I think that's why he was trying to do it. uh, Reportedly, uh, you know, if it happens. What the president has to do the president's responsibility is to the american people it's to the it's to the constitution and general mcmaster makes a you know he makes a heartfelt gesture one that i uh, am am sympathetic towards but congress needs to make that decision that's congress's decision because they are accountable to us as the voters and we are the sure. ones who put them in the office and it needs to be congress that says you know let's stay here and do nation building and not the president. And I think that, if I can kind of pivot back to my overall broad, you know, uh, point, sure. it's the fact that we we have reversed the way that war and, and military conflict is done in this country. It's now a president first decision, and then Congress is a reaction. Whereas our founders wanted it to be Congress is first, and then it's the president. Because think about this, you know, a little bit of constitutional, you know, upkeep. Um, Article one, section eight gives power, gives, you know, grant Congress the authority to declare war. The reason why that is, is our founders understood war to be a national commitment. Uh, I mean, everyone suffered when we were at war. And so in order to prevent us from going to war, um, they wanted to give, give Congress that power because once they, once Congress voted, one person's in charge. What does that sound like to our founders? That doesn't sound like the country they want. That sounds like King George Three. And and so before they kind of turn someone into King George Three, they want to make sure that Congress gives them that authority. And what we've done now is that we're nowhere near that level. We're nowhere near uh, the deliberation and the 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 thinking required. And that's really tragic because, you know, I wear bracelets around my my wrist, memorial bracelets, of of men who have died um you know, serving this country in the GWAT wars, and I'm sitting here going, "Can any of our elected officials look their parents in the eye and tell them their death was worth it?" <laughs> because if you if you can't do that as an elected official, I don't think that you should be in a position where you are sending someone else off to war. Boom. Um, that,
1: that, 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 that's not
0: to say, yeah,
1: yeah. That, that that's it, the issue. It, it, you know, Omaha Beach, Iwo Jima. You know, everyone understood what you were doing, the significance of it here. This is so tenuous when, you know, just we're running out of time here. It's probably our longest podcast. So engaging, so much insight here. Um, we got to have you back. Um, But to just zoom it back to what we do broadly here, you know, Afghanistan is one theater. We have North Korea that directly threatened us and has the ability at a regime level to threaten us. Same thing with Iran, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, Syria, Iraq and, and Afghanistan. A lot of that is it's when you're talking about the multinational terror groups and the tribal warfare, you really have to see what does it benefit us to get involved, especially when there's a lot of soft power plays we can make that actually address the funding issues and uh, more of our strategic concerns. But but these are the kind of – this is the balancing act of weighing the risk, risk versus return matrix you would do if you had a congressional deliberation of going to war and – This is what we moved against. Um, Anyway, we are totally out of time. Jaron, thanks so much for offering um, so much of your firsthand experience. This is stuff no one's going to hear anywhere else. And uh, um, this stuff doesn't fit on a bumper sticker. That's why we have this. Anyway, guys, we are way out of time. Um, There's a lot more we're going to cover next week as we get closer to Congress uh, coming back. There's 50 million issues from debt ceiling to the budget to healthcare once again, the phony tax reform bill, which we'll talk about, um, and the courts, as always. Um, make sure you get your CRTV subscription, $100. Bucks. Um, actually, if you use promo code Horowitz, you get $10 off. More content than you know what to do about and last for the full year, um, as well as go to PatriotSupply.com and our folks at Patriot Depot. Um, Patriot Supply, make sure... You get your 140 meals for just 99 bucks. Support our sponsors so we can continue telling the truth. God bless you all. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.